the text for this morning, Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> but before we go to the Lord, hear from his word, let's ask his blessing upon him. Let's pray together once more. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled. We praise you for this, your word. We thank you that you have left us uh, not to grow up around in darkness, but that you've given us a sure word, Lord, that you have condescended to speak to us, to listen to us, as it were, as children. We thank you that we can know what you've given us to know. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to humble ourselves before this word, uh, Lord, and we ask that in, that in it we would find your will and your ways and that we would humble ourselves and that you would place that will in our hearts that we may love you in new ways, place it in our minds that we would think rightly, Lord, and we place it in our hearts that we would love, Lord, according uh, to your ways. Uh, Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts now that we might accept this word by faith as we hear it, that it may change our lives and our hearts, that we would be transformed into the image evermore of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Philippians chapter 4. I'll be reading the first nine verses of chapter 4. Philippians 4, verses 1 to 9. The focus of the text will be verses 4 to 7, and we'll see how far we can get. But for now, give your full attention, please. Philippians 4, beginning in, church, beginning in chapter 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Synecdoche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any, were anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What do you have learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So far the reading of God's word may indeed add his blessing to it. In this world you will have troubles, promised Jesus in the Gospel of John. And in the church, there are troubles. In the life of believers, there are troubles. One of my beloved professors from seminary would say that the church deals with rejection, with resistance, with recession, and relationships. And these cause anxiety and worry and fear and sorrow. And this is true, we know, when lives are given to Jesus, when Jesus invades lives, there is rejection of that person. Very often, 
and very frequently from family members, from coworkers, from friends, and even in the social and civil realm, there is rejection. And when a person's allegiance is for Christ, they face resistance as well. Sometimes bodily harm or imprisonment in different places in the, in the world comes from a commitment and a stand taken for Christ. Other times this resistance is seen in more subtle ways, like intimidation or attempting to dismiss believers or silence them. Recession is certainly reality for believers who hold fast to their sincerely held Christian beliefs in a world that has so erected a worldview that is diametrically opposed to the biblical religion. Finances are an ever-present cause of worry and anxiety in life particularly in cultures that increasingly vilify and look down upon those holding to what God's Word clearly teaches them about morality, about family, about marriage, about human sexuality. Believers are marginalized and pushed aside and looked down upon. And the normalization of perversion and attempted demonization of God's way has a profound impact on Christian churches and on Christian people. And then relationships are certainly potential worrisome, anxiety-causing endeavors. Sleepless nights, fear, fear of losing or lost relationships, pride rather than humility, unity jeopardized by misunderstanding or simply refusing to face conflicts in relationships and to reconcile in the way God commanded, in the way that was commanded by Jesus himself. And in all of these things, I'm not merely speaking of our culture or society or churches. You may have noticed this, but these are the exact things going on in Philippi about which Paul is seeking to remedy. Paul is trying to give the remedy to the anxiety caused by these troubles that caused anxiety to that church. And as you could readily notice as I listed them, these are all problems that we face even today, especially today in our lives and society and churches. Uh, the Christians at Philippi had plenty to worry about, and so do we. And what antidote to anxiety has the Lord prescri prescribed for our troubled hearts? What antidote do we have for the Philippians and to, for us in Fort Wayne here today? And as we're going to look at this morning and possibly next week as well, what is the Lord's prescription for anxiety and worry and fear? Well, and we'll see as we look at this passage that Paul first gives us a plea, a plea in, in verses 4 to 6, a plea. And then in verse 7, he gives us provision. And then finally, in verse 8, he gives us a promise. A plea, the provision, and a promise. Well, the Christians at Philippi had many things to worry about. Many things about which to worry. They face threats to their peace and progress, both internally and externally. Externally from the outside, there were adversaries who were intimidating. And this aggression was overwhelming and challenged their courage to stand united in the gospel that they accepted as Paul preached it to them and established that church. And at that time, remember Paul, their spiritual father. Where was he? He was locked up in Rome awaiting the verdict of that emperor, life or death. 
And then within the church, there were, these, uh, there were those who were overly obsessed with their own issues and their own agenda, which jeopardized the church's unity of mind and of affection, mind and heart towards one another. In chapter 1, Philippians, Paul addresses suffering and the threat that that suffering posed to our joy and peace. And he says this in Philippians 1, starting in verse 27, about this threat of suffering to joy and peace. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. This doesn't jive well with the health and wealth teaching. It's been granted to you in Christ to suffer for His sake, even as you believe in Him. He goes on, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All right, so Paul lays down in in, in chapter 1, suffering can threaten our joy and peace. Suffering can threaten our joy and peace. And then Paul also spoke of the problem of selfishness and self-obsession from within. He says there's a, this is a sinister and subtle effect that it has on the unity of the church. He, he references this at the beginning of chapter 2, starting at verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Paul goes on, as you know, that this glorious, this glorious hymn to Christ as God, the Carmen Christi it's been called, the hymn to Christ as God, explaining that Christ was the greatest demonstration of this very thing, the divine second person of the Trinity, humbling himself. And for both of these problems, those outside, right, the aggression, challenging of unity, the inside, selfishness, threatening the unity, degrading that unity, the apostles' prescription for them both, to believers, was to return their focus to Jesus himself, to cast their eyes upon Christ. And Paul demonstrated this from his own example. We don't have time to examine and discuss all of what the letter to the Philippians is doing. Um, At some point we will, uh, Lord willing, do that. But right now we can begin to see the structure of his argument and what he is doing in this letter. In verse 4, Paul calls them to courage and humility. Again, he begins this chapter, 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown... Stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Calls them to stand firm in the Lord. Not in their own strength, not in their own issues, but to stand firm in the Lord. And he urges these two prominent members of the church to seek reconciliation in the Lord. Again, in verse 2, I entreat Iodia 
in Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He says, help these women. And then in our passage, in verse 4, Paul continues with this, his wrapping up with this kind of to-do list that comes before his closing benediction. It's kind of a to-do list. Right? He says, rejoice, be gentle, don't worry, pray, think good thoughts, do good deeds. And this is Paul's common practice. In his letters, he closes by giving much advice, by giving much instruction just before that closing benediction. And we might think as we read this that Paul is just giving this disconnected advice or imperatives without much unity to anything else, disconnected. This is not the case. These directives are connected by more than merely Paul's affection for them. For these instructions are actually precisely what we're looking at this morning, God's antidote for the anxiety that so often disorients and disrupts and discourages our joy and deprives us of peace. The prescription given here, this prescription gives the remedy to the stresses that we have from the pain and suffering from the outside and from the stresses and friction from within the church as well. And we see that there are two radically different ways of dealing with these stresses of life, two radically opposed ways. One is hardwired from our birth, our nature, our flesh, and our hearts. And the other is supernaturally, supernatural and only comes from a new heart and an outlook produced by the gracious working of God himself in the hearts of those who have been given new life. The first of these outlooks, of these ways, is grounded in our desire to control all the things of our life through our own grit and diligence and work. But the problem is, when this way of dealing with life collides, there's a collision between the brutal reality that there are really very few things in our life that are within our control. That there are so many things in life that lie beyond our control. And this way offers very little but more stress, more frustration, and infuriation, and more anxiety, and fear, and worry, and dread. The way of man, our way, is not the remedy. It's not the remedy. And we all know that. Any of us who've been dedicated for years to a particular job, and then been let go due to downsizing, we know this. Anyone who's been loyal for decades to a particular group and then been betrayed and treated as an enemy, not had that loyalty reciprocated, we know this is the case. You know that your hard work and fierce determination does not make you the master of your destiny and fate, says the old poem. Anyone who's been ill and their care has gone from treatment of the disease to management of pain, Anyone who's gone through that or known anyone who's gone through that knows that this is not the case. But God's word offers an entirely different approach to the troubles that cause anxiety. The word, his word, offers a powerful antidote that is altogether deeper than our circumstances or situations of life. Deeper than our marshalling of our own emotions and self-attitude or positive methods of stress management. The anchor that Paul offers secures our well-being eternally in the life and love of our gracious, loving, heavenly Father. And he offers, he encourages to us the joy Paul offers to us here. and encourages us 
in the joy that he has found in a life defined by Christ, by his cross and his resurrection power. And from that flows calmness and gentleness and prayer with thanksgiving and reflective imitation of Christ-like character as the Spirit works in our hearts to, 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 to shape us and to massage us and to grow us. And then listen to this. The consequence of that is what? The consequence is protection from anxiety through the peace of God, through the uh, delivered to our troubled hearts, through the living presence of the God of peace. Right? Listen to that again. The consequence of what the Lord does, His way, His work in your hearts, is protection from anxiety through the peace of God, delivered to our troubled hearts through the living presence of God, the peace. Right? The peace of God from the God of peace. And so let's look now as we begin to look into this passage at how Paul gets there by looking first at the plea. The plea from verses 4 to 6. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness or gentle spirit, depending on how it's translated, let it be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul repeats himself here, right? In the text, the inspired text, rejoice in the Lord. Always, I say again, rejoice. Even and always in the sufferings that we go through. Did Paul know much about suffering? You better believe he did. And we're going to look for a moment. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to look for a moment at Paul, something of what he knew about suffering, this, the apostle, this one who went from Saul the great to Paul the small. Again, I'm feeling a little bit weak and my voice is weak, so please bear with me. I thank you uh, for doing so. I'm thankful for these speakers now that we were able to have. Um, in Paul's letter, especially in 2 Corinthians, there are themes that run throughout comfort, affliction, and suffering. These run throughout the letter. These are not foreign to Paul, nor to the New Testament, nor, nor to the Christian life. 2 Corinthians, notice how he begins chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, the second half of verse 3 says, The God of all comfort comforts us all in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort others in any affliction with that same comfort. Then in verse 5, For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings so that through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. Again, there's this glorious promise, this connection between comfort and suffering, suffering and comfort. For what reason? To share this, the comfort of Christ with others. And this is part of Paul's opening statement to the Corinthians. It's his hello. In this hello, in this greeting, he gives a foreshadowing, foreshadowing of what he will unfold what he'll interact with throughout this letter. We can't get into all of what's going on in 2 Corinthians. That's coming later, possibly next year. Uh, but Paul is dealing with false teachers and their attacks upon him. Their slander and tearing him down. Their persecution of Paul. Their belittling and dismissiveness of Paul. Right? They are strong. But Paul is weak. They don't suffer. Paul radically suffered. And therefore what? 
They are blessed. Paul is cursed. If the Corinthians are enamored with false teachers because of credentials and because of their strength, then Paul says he too will boast in his credentials to show the foolishness of the false teachers. And that's what he does. It's kind of like the proverb. From the Proverbs, you know, Paul hasn't answered the fool according to his folly. And he hasn't done so from 1 Corinthians 1 all the way to 2 Corinthians 11. And then he does. This is exactly what he's doing here. And he shows their foolishness, their foolishness. And he shows that if anyone had reason to boast, Paul did. It was Paul. Yet he boasted in things that demonstrated his weakness, because then the power of the gospel and Christ himself shines forth. And so we have a kind of mini-autobiography in 2 Corinthians 11. And he asks this question, verses 29 and 30 of 2 Corinthians 11. He says, who is weak? Aren't I? And if I must boast, I'll boast in the things showing my weakness. And he says, if anyone, I have a place to boast about myself. And Paul lays it out for them, right? He says, I have knowledge. I'm the Hebrew. I'm the Israelite, I'm of Abraham's seed. Right? And all those things you might look at from the, you know, a certain vantage point, those are expected. Those are things that one would boast in. But Paul goes on. Those first handful of things might impress many. Paul goes on, he says, I'm a servant, a doulos, a slave of Christ. I am the one who has labored much, been imprisoned more, been beat almost to death countless times. Five times whipped, 39, 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods, one time stoned, three times shipwrecked, adrift at sea and on journeys. I'm in danger from rivers and robbers, my own people, from Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, without food, in cold, in exposure, and also the daily pressures from anxiety from all the churches. These are my credentials. These are my commitments. These are my qualifications, Paul says. But it's that which shows my weakness in which I will boast. This is me, weak. This is how I want you to see me. Paul isn't complaining. He's not whining, nor is he bragging. This becomes clear again in verses 29 to 30. Paul made the point about the unwilling, he's making a point about the unwillingness of the false teachers to identify with the scandal of the cross. The false teachers who call Paul weak could never endure the things that he has. In fact, his weakness is a result of his calling from Christ to preach the gospel. And more importantly, these false apostles preach and teach a false gospel as they do precisely to avoid the kind of suffering and persecution that Paul has endured. They want nothing to do with that. They want it to be relevant. They didn't want to offend anyone because their goal is popularity. That's their goal. There's only one reason why Paul endures all of this. It's because he's been called to endure his sufferings by Jesus Christ. He's been called to do so. Suffering and persecution comes with the apostolic office. He says, if anyone has a place to boast, it's me. And he goes on, he says, I've been shown extraordinary things. I have been privy to visions and revelations of God. Chapter 12, verse 4, he says, he heard things which cannot be uttered, 
which cannot be told. Yet what does he boast of? His weakness. His weakness. Paul, of all people, committed to his Lord, and he of all people has the, the qualifications to boast of in himself, but he will not. And so he speaks of himself in the third person. I know a man, he says. What's he doing there? He's trying to distance himself from that. And he speaks in the third person. And he tells us that to keep him humble, to keep him from the very boast, that very boasting, he was given a thorn in the flesh. A thorn in the flesh. Again, there's much opinion regarding what this thorn in the flesh was. More than we could ever get into right now or spend a month looking at. But for sure, this has come down in our common vernacular as a phrase for us, a thorn in our flesh. Mothers say that my children are a thorn in my flesh. My boss is a thorn in my flesh. But whatever this was, right, it wasn't a trivial matter for Paul. It wasn't just a throwaway comment. It troubled Paul greatly. He suffered much from what it was. And whatever it was, it was an ever-present reminder to Paul. And it is for us a reminder as well. We need to be careful when we look at these things. Right? There's not a complete analogy one-to-one here. We're not Paul. We're not the apostle. But still, we need to keep humble. Right? We are bent to boast in many, many things in our flesh by our nature, to boast and to brag. Right? Whether it's our strength or our intellect or our money or our looks or our service, our good deeds, our law-keeping, our theology, whatever pet issues that we have. These are all things that we can do, and they are all a way to make uh, a way for us of looking down on others and boasting in ourselves. So that's something of the Apostle Paul, his qualifications, his suffering. This one who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, he's afflicted in this way, this thorn in his side. And so three times in 2 Corinthians 12, chapter 8, he pled with the Lord to take it away. Take it away. Take it away, Lord. In verse 9, what did the Lord tell Paul in response? He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For you, my grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. In Paul's response, this corrected and protected and reminded apostle, his response, this self-proclaimed divinely appointed weakling says what? His response comes in the second half of chapter, verse 9. He responds to the Lord's word to him with this. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Why? Why does he say that? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. May rest upon me. And that word that's translated there, rest upon me, it's translated differently, depending on what English version of the Bible you have. But the word means to abide. The power of Christ may abide upon me. Take, uh, take up residence upon me, reside, come to dwell, to dwell within, to dwell in me. As in that tent of old. Right? Remember, there's a, there's a linguistic connection here that Paul is making. 
right? Remember the tent of old, the tabernacle in the wilderness? As the Shekinah glory descended and filled and dwelt the tabernacle and the temple. God's dwelling with his people. The greatest blessing of God being with his people. This is the word he uses. And this is the imagery that should come to mind. The Shekinah glory of God filling the temple. Dwelling, abiding, taking up residence in that temple. In such an amazing and glorious and overpowering way. And this is also that exact word that we read about. Every year at Christmas time in John chapter 1, verse 14, right? The word became flesh, and here it is, made his dwelling amongst us, tabernacled amongst us. It's the same word. Emmanuel, God with us. It's the same word we see, we saw earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. The Lord is with us, right? For we are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Paul quotes the Old Testament there. Is that not glorious? It's glorious. That great promise throughout all the Scripture, and we see it consummated and completed and fulfilled in Revelation 21, verse 3. It's that same word again used. Where it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell, tabernacle with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What greater reason and ground for rejoicing is there than that? Being made the dwelling place of the power of Christ, where he reveals his glory. And so going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 11, it says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content in my weaknesses, in my insults, in my in hardships, in persecution and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. He is strong in Christ in his weaknesses. The sinner, saved by Christ, rescued from certain and appropriate punishment, from judgment, from the bondage of sin and self-righteousness, from his pretended control of his own life, from the delusion of keeping the law. This sinner of whom Christ calls out and gives life is contented with the strength and power of his Savior. And after all, what is greater than that? Christ alone is the powerful one. Alone. Not Moses, not David, not Peter, not Paul, who's been shown visions and revelations, and certainly not you or I. Truth of the matter is, we are weak. We are broken people, not merely physically, but spiritually. But yet our great God and Father condescends to us to give us His Word and to give us reminders, physical reminders in the supper of a spiritual reality. And to weaklings like us, the power of Christ calls. It calls, it corrects, and it carries us along the way. He calls and He also commands that we be weak. And so for His sake, we be content in that weakness. For when you are weak, the power of Christ can shine through and be manifest in and despite your weaknesses. Because He is not weak. He is not weak. He is altogether almighty and powerful. And we think for a moment about sufferings. 
in our Christian life. Again, in a future sermon, we'll look more in detail at this. There's glorious material to mine from God's Word regarding our suffering. But as we've seen already this morning, a number of times, it's been appointed to us to suffer. It's been appointed to us to suffer. But I'll say just this for now. For those of you in pain and suffering, and those of you seeking deliverance, what is His Word to you? What does He say to us? He says, my love is enough for you. It's enough. My love secures and implies all other goods. And His favor is life. His loving kindness is better than life itself, even the best life. Is His love enough for you? Is it enough for you? Is His favor your life? Or does it all just bring on a yawning indifference? I pray that it is not. Because all of what you go through must be filtered through a knowledge of His love for you. Or you will be in despair. Can you, with Paul, say, I will glory in my infirmities rather than seek deliverance? I will glory in them. I'll rejoice in suffering. As we read earlier in this letter, the Lord sought to use the foolishness and weakness of His creation. People, weak and foolish, to deliver His message of salvation by treasures in jars of clay. And so it is with His answer to Paul, it is in weakness and that Christ's power is made perfect and shines like the noonday sun. The reminder, the suffering, the thorn in the flesh, it is a pointer to the important thing. And the important thing is Jesus Christ. That His grace is sufficient for you too and for me too. It is sufficient. And that in your weakness, His power is made perfect. What a glorious promise. This is the word of God to you, brothers and sisters, his precious children. Christ says, my grace is sufficient for you, for all of you. Have you gotten to the place in your life to rejoice in glory, in suffering? To really do so. Not just say it, but believe it and live it. I know it's hard. Not an easy thing to do. It's so hard. And in our own strength, it is impossible. In all of our pain and sorrow, it's hard to say it, even if we know it. But we must. We must. We must pray for the truth to fill us with joy and delight and to live it for His glory. And He will grant that good. It's good for us. It is glory for Him. His power in our weakness. And this is the message he calls for, he has for all who will come to him and find his sufficient grace. What a glorious, gracious King and Redeemer we have. Because outside of him, there is no consolation, there is no comfort, there is no reason for your suffering, there's no hope. For outside of Christ, this is all that we have this pathetic, withering world in which we suffer, and beyond this world, even worse, 
outside of Christ. Suffering is a pointer and a reminder that eternal suffering, of that eternal suffering that surely awaits all those apart from Christ, this one who suffered ultimately, so that those who entrust themselves upon him would enjoy the blessing of an eternity with no pain, with no suffering, with no tears, with no mourning. In him there is abundant joy and life, brothers and sisters. You must know this and meditate upon this and believe it and trust it. In him there is abounding life and joy. It is in him alone that there is boasting in his power. Look what he's done for the very worst of us. This is the weakling's power, the powerful Christ. Well, we'll return to Philippians, our text, uh, next week, and these issues outside and inside that bring us anxiety and worry. But for now, as we close, dear Christian, may we seek our contentment in the only one that can supply it and stop seeking it in everything else because they are shallow and they are empty and they do not bring contentment or joy or life or delight. May we seek it in Christ alone, May we have eyes to see and ears that are, uh, and hearts that are corrected and protected by these very things that bring us focus and perspective, even our sufferings. We've been given the most important, the best news of all time in history. Treasure immeasurable. Yes, in jars of weak clay like you and I. Christ has come to bring salvation, to rescue, hope, to bring eternal life to all those that would entrust themselves upon Him. And those who do are given a new heart and a home in heaven with Him forever. This is the message of Scripture. It is the Gospel. And even in this life, they begin to live lives of gratitude. Those who have accepted this truth and trusted themselves upon Christ for their life, they begin to live lives of gratitude for this magnificent, massive, and glorious gift that they've been given. Lives that move in the direction of God's design. However small it may seem to us, He is moving us. He is moving you. He is changing you. He is growing you. And He will continue to do so, even to glory. So let us rejoice. I say again, rejoice, always. Because in Christ, we have it all. Confidence. Boldness, assurance, joy, rejoicing in suffering. Oh, how can it be? Not by any earthly or physical means, only by His Spirit working in and through us. And that is reason to rejoice and reason to repeat the gospel to a dead and dying world in such need of glorious, life-giving news. May we always overcome fear and anxiety and worry with the wonderful truth of the gospel. It is for us and ours to offer the world that is so anxious and terrified, pretending it's not. May we continue to praise our wonderful and beautiful King and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, always and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your work in our lives, for your love in giving your Son, that we would have life eternal before you in the boldness to enter into your presence by virtue of our Savior. Lord, we pray, help us to maintain faith and trust in your providence, in your sovereign working in this world, 
and in the society. Lord, give us the grace to love those who hate, to embrace in love those with whom we disagree. Help us, Lord, to show the love of Jesus to the worst offenders. Give us hearts that believe you when you say that vengeance is yours and that we are to bless and to help and to love and to pray for those in need. Protect us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Dear Lord, we pray. And give us strength for this week, even in our weakness, even in our pain, even in our suffering. Give us strength until we can come again and be refreshed and reminded again of your love. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.